You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. It's good to gather together this morning as the church. We're starting the book of Esther today. We're going to be in this book for three weeks, this Old Testament book. Now, in the past year, if you're new here, we went through the entire Bible in a year, a different overview sermon of every book of the Bible during 2021. So we've covered Esther before, but this allows us to go further into the book rather than one overview sermon to actually jump into it and to see exactly what it is that God has to say to us uh, through this incredible story. Uh, we, we believe in kind of a multiple approach to preaching here. Uh, there's a lot of wrong ways to preach. There's not one right way to preach. Sometimes we'll do uh, books of the Bible. Uh, sometimes we'll do more of a topical message, but have a text we work through in that topic. Uh, just a whole kind of collection of things to be able to present the scriptures uh, to us as a church family. And I'm excited to be in this book of Esther for the next three weeks. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll uh, jump into this book. Father, we are thankful for your word that you've given to us. May your mercy turn us into a grateful people who are eager to live for you in this community and to make your good news known to our family and friends and those around the world through our missions. I ask that you be with our missionaries in different countries around the world right now, that you give them comfort today, that you use them today, give them relationships and strength and peace. Uh, Lord, we lift them up to you. I ask you with all the churches in our community, as we know we're not the only ones doing this, that we be found faithful with the good news of the scriptures. And as I speak through Esther right now, will you speak through me, allow this not to be of my opinion, but of your truth, and allow us to be clear on who you are, the greatness of your name, what you've done for us. And it's all in the name of Jesus we ask this as you keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. Amen. So when you're a religious minority, and Americans are about to really figure out what that looks like, when you're a religious minority living in a dominant culture, I say Christians in America are about to find out what that looks like. When you're a religious minority living in a dominant culture with completely different views from you on almost everything, how do you relate to that culture? Do you withdraw, as some choose to do? Do you assimilate, kind of if you can't beat them, join them kind of approach? Do you protest? Do you critique? Well, I think the book of Esther helps us to understand the answer to what it looks like for us to live as religious minorities in a dominant culture that's completely different when it comes to worldview and belief in anything that Christians hold to be true. Meredith Soares in her book said, the book of Esther is begging to be optioned for streaming. It has everything our culture loves in a binge-worthy show. Gatsby-level opulence, rebellion, debauchery, plot twists, revenge, and a particularly stellar heroine. And through that story, the book of Esther is going to help us understand that first question about how we function and live in a world that is not our own. See, in the biblical book of Esther, the Jews are in danger. That's the context. They're a religious minority who have been exiled living in Persia a society dominated by a completely different worldview than theirs as God's people. And in this setting, at this time, God's people have no king. They have no army, and they have no land. It's pretty much dire straits for them, and powerful forces want to destroy them from the face of the earth. See, in the past, when God's people have been in trouble, when you read the Old Testament, he sent miraculous signs and wonders. We see God bring 10 plagues to Egypt, part the Red Sea. We see him help the ones in the furnace who refused to bow down to the statue. 
We see God moving and doing things. Clearly that it's God speaking and doing and rescuing through signs and wonders. But here in this story, he seems completely absent. Did you know in the book of Esther, there's no mention of God at all? How weird does that sound for a book of the Bible? God's name is not mentioned. There's no vision from him. There's no dreams to interpret. There's no prophecy. There's no prayer for the people to pray that he leads them. Nothing. So the question that Esther poses to us is this. God missing, is this an accidental oversight? Or could it be the point? I don't think there are accidental oversights in the Bible. I think every scripture is inspired by God and every word is supposed to be there by his sovereignty and by his grace. But did the writer of this just kind of mess up and forget to include God's name? Or is it actually the point of the story? Bethany Jenkins says, in Esther, a string of coincidences occur in order for the Jews to be saved. A drunken and boastful king, a self-respecting queen, a beauty pageant, a sensuous girl, an overheard plot, and a timely insomnia. We're also going to see God use morally questionable decisions and actions by others to work all things together for the good of his people. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York and an author, says that his silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not his abandonment. Oftentimes, we might find ourselves asking questions like, where is God? I want to believe in him, but if there is a God, then why did this happen in my life? If there really is a God, or if he's even good, then why are these things happening in the world? Why are there injustices? Why do all these things take place? Well, God doesn't ignore that, but it's easy to read this book and relate, because it might seem on the surface as if God had forgotten no king, no land, no army. But Esther teaches us that in his providence, in God's providence, he's working out the salvation of his people. And as those who claim the name of Christ, we have to actually fight to believe that. But it's not us making up something. We have scripture and precedent that God is continually working on the behalf of those he has called his own. So let's jump into the book. The beginning of chapter one tells us the king had a party and invited a lot of important people. Like a lot of people. It was basically so he could just show how amazing he was, how wealthy he was, how powerful he was. So he called for a party. We see in verse seven of chapter one, drinks were served in an array of gold goblets. This ain't no red solo cup party, okay? Each with a different design. Royal wine, no two buck chuck at the king's party here. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions, what some of you college students call St. Patrick's Day. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve each whatever each person wanted. This is like the wine tasting of the century here. Then we're introduced to Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman of King Ahasuerus' palace. King Ahasuerus is also known as Xerxes, which I wish that was the name instead of this in this translation because it would hopefully be easier to. I've been on like YouTube videos sounding out these pronunciations trying to learn them. 
On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, these are some names, Bigtha, imagine being named Bigtha. Bigtha definitely plays softball. Uh, Abagtha, Zethar, and Kerkis. The seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off, bring the queen to the party. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti was a very self-respecting person. And she was going to not let herself in any way, shape, or form be put on display. She refused to come at the king's commands that was delivered by his eunuchs. She wasn't going to go out there and, and, and figuratively or even literally expose herself to the people. She was not going to do that. The king became furious. I mean, she disobeyed the king. And his anger burned within him. She's like, I'm not coming down there. So the king consulted the wise man who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice, because technically she did break the law in that culture at that time by disobeying the king. The most trusted ones were Karshena, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memucan. There are these seven officials of Persia and Medea who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti? Did she refuse to obey King Ashuerus' commands that had delivered, was delivered by the eunuchs? Memucan said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials. She embarrassed us and the people who were in every one of King Asuerus's provinces. So he's mad. And she's going to be in trouble. See, sometime later, when King Ahasuerus's rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti and she, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatment. So Vashti disappears. But we don't hear from her in the story again. And as you read this, you might be thinking, wow, this sounds like a very oppressive situation. A very, as the movement was in the past couple of years towards abuse, a Me Too movement kind of situation. And my response would be, you're right. Like, that is what's happening here. Like, the uneasy feelings you have hearing this story are probably appropriate. Parading these women, these virgins as they're called, in front of the men. Then the young women who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. So it's basically like some kind of beauty contest to decide who's going to be the next queen. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, a critical character in this story. Son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. In the Bible, you never have to ask the question, who's your daddy? Because they always tell you over and over again for like four generations. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, important historical fact, took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. So here is Mordecai, one of the Jews who had been exiled into Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar at that time. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, Hadassah, and I were introduced to her, that is Esther. 
because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai, her relative, had adopted her as his own daughter. And we see that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Why? Because she was beautiful in his eyes. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. And you can conclude yourself exactly what that means. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. I said, no, I'm not going to be exposed like that. You're not going to take advantage of me like that. So she's dismissed, and we don't hear from her again. And now here comes the king's beauty contest, and he picks this lady named Esther, this woman, this virgin, to parade around, and who knows what all she had to endure. But what else do we know about her? She's Jewish. All of a sudden, there's a Jewish woman in the position of queen here in Persia. What do you know? A coincidence, it must be, for sure. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still did not reveal her background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. He said, do not tell them you're Jewish. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her, simply respect for a parent figure. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate with Bigfin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plots, he's overhearing these guys saying they're going to kill the king, the one Esther is the queen for. He reported it to Queen Esther, his adopted daughter, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged in the gallows. That was their punishment for their treason of trying to establish a plan, a plot to kill the king. And this event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. So it goes down in the history books that Mordecai leveraged, really took a risk out there by more or less telling on the two people in their plot to Esther who then went and told the king. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, so we have a new ruler coming into play here, son of Hamadatha the Agite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. So this guy named Haman now comes on the scene. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. Worship him. He is one of my appointed rulers. Everyone should bow down to him, but there's one problem. Mordecai serves the one true God. He's a child of God. He is a Jewish man, one of God's chosen people. He's not going to bow down to anyone else. So we see, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. I'm not one of you. I'm not of this world or your kingdom. I'm of God's kingdom. So when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity as a Jew, 
It seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He had a better plan. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people. Destroy all the Jews throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Here's the situation. Bow down and live. Don't bow down and all of your people are going to be vanished from the earth. The situation with Mordecai is very similar to the book of Daniel where Daniel was told to bow down and pray to the king. And when he wouldn't bow down, he was thrown into a lion's den. And we see in the story specifically that God closed the mouth of the lion. You might say, I don't believe that. That's scientifically impossible. Well, we also believe that Jesus was dead and came back to life three days later. So there you go. I believe this. But with Daniel, however, God specifically shut the mouth of the lion. We're told that's what God actually did because of Daniel's faith and to protect him. But here, he does nothing like this. There's no lion's mouth to shut. There's a hostile empire and a king who wants to do away with all of God's people. So what does he do? He reaches out to Esther, Mordecai does. And he says, you're the one who has access to the king. You're his queen. Can you intercede here? Can you make sure that this isn't going to happen? Can you leverage your position and your power uh, to be able to speak on behalf of your people and to do something here? So we see that Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard, and he was not been summoned, the death penalty. It even applies to me, the queen, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing the person to live. I've not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. He's completely ignored me. Esther's response is reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther. He's like, hey, Esther, don't think you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. When he finds out you're one of us, guess what? You're going to go too. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. As in, you don't have to be the one. Because I believe that God has a plan for his people. And that God always keeps his promises. That he has set apart a people for himself that he is going to redeem for his glory. That he's going to reconcile to himself, make his name great to the ends of the earth. And that, that whole plan cannot be stopped by any earthly ruler or kingdom. So either you're going to step in or guess what? I'm going to believe that God's going to do it down the road, but you and your family will be destroyed. And he says, who knows? That's a very famous verse in Christian life. Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Maybe it's the reason God has you here. Yes, you've endured probably trauma. Yes, you've been someone who's been put on display. Yes, you were only picked because of your beauty. All the things we want to shun and push back. But maybe God has you there, not for any of those things, but for this reason, to be the one in an earthly sense, who's going to save God's people. So Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Like, we have to pray. I feel the weight of the moment. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. 
better to die with God than to live without him. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. And here we see God is going to use Esther to save his people. This one who just appeared as one of the virgins who's going to go before the king, who was beautiful and nice looking, and now the position God has her in. Karen Job said this, beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. That we can't even begin to explain or comprehend the hugeness of God's sovereignty and his will, and at the same time we know that nothing can stop it or slow it down or defeat it. That God is going to work out his purposes, first for his glory, but also for his people that he has promised he will redeem. And it's not a force, it's not coincidences, it's not fate, it's the Lord's sovereign hand at work. We see this in Romans 8, where he says that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Notice he does not say, if we know that everything that happens to the believer is going to be good. He says, no, God's working all things together for good. For everyone? No, for those who are called for his purpose. Those he's called and brought to salvation. That God's working all the things in your life together for your good. Verse 29, because those he foreknew. Before the beginning of time, he also predestined that in his sovereignty he chose to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That God's working out everything for your good. It's like a Rubik's Cube, kind of lining up the Rubik's Cube. He's working out everything in your good to ultimately make you like Jesus. And you might say, well, you don't know my story. That's nice for a Christian coffee mug. That makes for a nice Facebook with a dramatic background behind it of somebody standing looking at the water with the Bible verse at the bottom. But you don't know my story. How can you say that God's working things out for my good because he certainly isn't doing that for me. And I want to be sensitive to that. I'm sure Mordecai and I'm sure Esther had moments where they felt the exact same way. But I want to keep reading this to show you what God is doing for his people. Because God's people now are not defined by an ethnicity. They're defined by Jesus Christ. And the church is the people of God. For those who have given their lives to Jesus are God's chosen people. That every promise he has not abandoned Israel, every promise he has made to the Jews has been answered in Jesus Christ. He promised them a Messiah and he has given us a Messiah to trust. God's always had a people. In the Old Testament, people called the Jewish people, they called them God's chosen people. Why would God be any different than the New Testament? Thankfully, by his grace, he's extended that good news to the Gentiles, to us. So you might say, I just don't think that can be true because of my own life and my own story. If there is a God, he's not working things out for my good, even though I do believe in him. Well, let's get to verse 30. And notice he never mentions the absence of problems. That's not the story of the Christian life. We're almost told to, we're not almost, we're told to expect problems. He says in verse 30, theologians call this the golden chain of salvation. He says, in those he predestined, 
That's a confusing word, but it's a biblical word, so we can't pretend it's not there or redefine it or, or try to put disclaimers around it. God, in his sovereignty, be sovereign in everywhere else. Why would he be sovereign in salvation? It's not this like exemption thing over on the side. So God has predestined the people to himself. That should leave us in awe and wonder rather than in controversy. That should lead us to thank God for his grace and mercy rather than anything else. There's lots of questions that we'll never know the full answers to, but God has predetermined a people for himself. You might say, then why share your faith? Well, evangelism is the means that God uses to carry out his divine will. It's through telling. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So we're called to go and tell the story. And we trust God to be the one who does the work. So those he predestined, he's talking about his people here. He also called. Now calling is something that God does when he brings us to salvation. He's, it's almost like a wooing, not, not that God's desperate, but he's kind of drawing us to himself. The details of our lives are lining up to point us to him. Jesus said no one can come to the Father in John 6, and no one can come unless the Father enables them to. It's an act that takes place of God bringing us to himself. This is all grace. We can't take any credit for it. This is incredible news. He calls us to himself. He calls us to salvation. And those he called, we're told he also justified. It's a legal term. He's declared us to be not guilty. Even though our sins are many, his mercy is so much more. If I made a list of my sins that I've committed in my life, they'd go down the aisle, they'd go through the lobby, out in the parking lot, probably take an hour to get out. Thank you, parking lot team. Wasn't for you to take two hours. And go down to the lighted Sessions Road, go to Sunny's and order a sweet tea. I mean, that's how long it would be. And I'm guessing your list isn't that much different. You know how God sees it? That list of sins canceled, erased. Why? Because Jesus took on the punishment for those sins that we committed, even though he had never actually sinned himself. He canceled the debt that was owed because of our sin. So when you hear the good news, the gospel is good news, this is the good news, that God has declared us not guilty because Jesus, who was never guilty, became guilty for us, so in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. If that doesn't get you excited, goodness gracious sakes alive. That's the good news of the gospel. We have been predestined, called, justified. We're told one day he'll also be glorified. And that's going to be heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, when everything actually that's painful and traumatic actually does go away once and for all. And the conclusion to this is verse 31. Not to the text, but to that, to verse 30. He says, okay, if we're really predestined and called and justified and, and we're glorified, what then are we to say about these things? How do we respond to such good news? In chapter 8, verse 1, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Like you, me, like we're not condemned. But God does not condemn you because Jesus stood in your place condemned. There's no condemnation. He says, and here's what God has done. Here is how he's been working out since the beginning of time your salvation for his people. He says, what do we say? Paul's like, I only got one thing to say. If God's for us, and verse 30 proves that he is, that's a long time of working things out for your good. If God's for us, then who can be against us? Can the king of Persia? Yeah, right. For the Christian, the sky is never ultimately falling. The news does not determine our state of mind. 
Social media does not determine our state of mind. What does is consistently believing the fact that God is for us so nothing else can be against us. And this is ultimately referring to our salvation. God is in control of it. He says a little bit later in the chapter, who can separate us from the love of God? Who can do it? And the answer is nobody. Because God is sovereign, he's in control. See, Esther, in this book, the writer wants us to see that even in cruelty and violence in this foreign kingdom, and there are some bad things that happened here, he wants to show us the depths of despair from which God raised up Esther for his good work. So we can trust that even when God seems absent in our own lives and seems absent in our own stories, that he is always at work behind the scenes. He never abandons his people, even though when it feels like it. I know sometimes it does feel like it. I'm not going to make light of that for a second. All I can tell you back is that's not true. It's not true. And we have to fight those lies because you have thousands of years of biblical history and testimony that tells us otherwise. That he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it in Christ. That he's the good shepherd and his sheep, as in all believers, cannot be taken out of his hand. God has not forgotten or abandoned you. He never abandons his people. In his providence, he's working out the salvation of those he has called to salvation. Our God works amid broken systems. He works despite cruel sinners. And you might feel like you've been exiled in a strange land that doesn't know his name. And actually, you should feel that way as a Christian. You should feel restless and homeless here. But God does not forsake his people. So what Esther's story does is it invites us to ask whose team we are on. Whose team are we on? When, I've had people tell me that when you move to Alabama, the first thing they ask you is, which team? Who are you pulling for? Who's your team? Troy or South Alabama? No, I'm kidding. I thought the first question they asked you was, is, uh, are you married to your cousin? But apparently it's not that. So the two questions they ask you, sorry, Quincy folks are offended, sorry. Okay, so, so the, two, the question they ask you is Auburn or Alabama, and you gotta pick right away. They make you choose, Auburn or Alabama. Half our church goes to Quincy, that's from Quincy, I'm just kidding. We have to make a choice when we enter God's kingdom. And it's a much bigger decision than who you're gonna root for when you live in Alabama. And it's a daily choice. Are you going to be with the Lord? Or are you going to be with the world? And that was the question that Esther had to face. Will we follow the Lord or the ways of this world? And the answer to that question, I don't think it's even based on courage or resolve. You know, it's definitely part of the Christian story. The scriptures call us to be courageous. I think it's different than that. I think the way we're going to answer that question is based more on trust. Do I really believe that God is good? I really believe that God is sovereign. Do I really believe that he actually is working out all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose? Do I believe he's sovereign over the most powerful king of the place at that time? And I think the answer to that question, again, is not going to be based on pulling up your bootstraps or resolve, but who do I trust? And 
I had to deal with that before in my own life. I'm not an example of this. I have trust issues all the time. I have faith, you know, I doubt all the time. I'm just way more often than I should. Now, I'm, now, I believe this stuff with all my heart. Like, I really actually believe that Jesus is the exact one he claimed to be. I really believe, I believe the Bible is the word of God. But I'm a human being. So there are times where I have moments where, God, are you there? God, are you there? And the time I really experienced that was when my oldest son was born. And he had a lot of stuff going on in the hospital, a lot of stuff. I mean, he's a baby, really kind of scary stuff. And we didn't know it was coming until the day he was born. It wasn't like we had some kind of heads up or anything, because they didn't detect any of it. And this nurse walked in, and she knew that I was a pastor. And when you're a pastor, they try to like, like when you're a pastor, everybody gives you like crosses for Christmas, the presents, like, I'm not going to do all these crosses, but thank you. Uh, but it's just one of them kind of things. And she wanted to say something spiritual. I appreciate her. She really meant well, and we didn't shoot her down. We just like listened, you know, kind of thing. And she came in and she said, I know that your boy is going to be fine because God is good. Well, God is good. She's right about that. But God does not guarantee that our boy is going to be fine. He hasn't promised us that. I wish he did. But he didn't promise us that. So she walked out the door, very nice, very kind. And my wife and I just had it. Well, I was 25 at the time. My wife and I just kind of had to have a moment where I just looked at her and I said, you know, we're going to really find out what we believe here. Because either we believe God is good or he's not. God being good is not dependent on what happens with our son. It doesn't. But we can trust him even though it hurts with whatever he has in store because we know, we know that he's working all things good for the good of those who love him and been called according to his purpose. And there is no accident, there is no surprise with him. Nothing shocks him that he truly is sovereign over all things. Your life, my life, the one who saved us, the one who rose from the grave, our God is actively working throughout history for and on behalf of his people. And it's not defined by the ease and comforts of this world. See, back at the beginning, I asked the question, when you're a religious minority living in a dominant culture with completely different views from you on almost everything, how do you relate to the culture? Do you withdraw? Do you assimilate? Do you protest? Do you critique? And I think the answer is this. And I think Esther gives it to us. You live faithfully. You live faithfully in that culture. And for the next two weeks, we're going to really see what this looks like. This story unfolds. I mean, this is a made-for-Netflix Bible story, I'm telling you. Like, it unfolds, and it is powerful to see God work. See, Esther knew who she really was, and she acted accordingly. May we do the same. May we know who we are and act accordingly. That begins not by being tough or courageous, but by trusting God, that he really is the one sovereign God of the universe, who's not a foreign deity, but involved in every single detail of our lives for his glory and for our good to carry out what he has promised to his people, which is a relationship with himself for all eternity. It might not get easier here, but there is an expiration date. And we can trust God that eternity is a real place where real people go. And we get to be with him in Christ forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you love us. And we're thankful for you're the one who defines love. Love comes from you. And you tell us in your word that how we understand love is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How amazing. 
So Lord, I ask that we'll respond to your love by our affections growing for you, that you'll grow our love for you and that we'll follow you and obey you and believe you. Lord, I ask that we'll choose, I also ask that we'll choose the one who chose us once and for all for our salvation as many in here have, but also every day. Asking the question, whom are we going to serve? Lord, we know the world has empty promises. Forgive us when we fall prey to the deceit. I know that Satan's a liar. This world is overhyped. But you are everything you possibly claim to be and more than our minds could possibly comprehend or imagine. So we choose you, the one who first loved us. We thank you that you have a people and that you count us as a part of it in grace. Lord, we ask you add to that number. In the name of Jesus, amen. And we're gonna to respond to this good news by focusing on Christ today, as Jesus instructed us to do, to remember him through the bread and through the drink until he returns. So I'm gonna turn the service over to one of our elders of our church, Steve Elia, who's gonna now lead us in the Lord's Supper.